everyone. Welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hey. Hey. So um, uh, last month, if you remember, I mean, we all had this funeral for Cassini, the space probe. That finally crashed into Saturn. I think my invite might have got lost (laughs) in the mail. Oh, well, it was a great party. (laughs) So uh, Cassini was a probe from NASA to explore Saturn's rings. And what he did, I like to anthropomorphize Mm. my my probes and space, unmanned space, like, (laughs) machines. Vehicles. Vehicles, thank you. Um, And what he did was he was like, in between the rings pew 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 yep and then uh once his mission was done he was like all right bye guys and then he threw himself into the surface of saturn (gasps) did you know that no he just hauled himself into the surface of saturn (gasps) took a couple last pictures and then was like here you go arigato well bye i think arigato means hello actually um arigato is thank you oh never mind sorry (laughs) I've already I've already messed it up. Um, so because of Cassini in in um, in dedication to Cassini, mm-hmm. uh, I've decided to do a dads in space again. Oh yay! <laughs> I'm doing dads, dads in space two. In space, dads in space two. Mission to Mars. So um, uh, NASA is all about space exploration. We're very excited about Mars. People are very excited mm-hmm. about Mars. But the fact of the matter is, is that Mar- we have been excited about Mars for a while, a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Dads in Space 2, A Mission to Mars. So um, I'm going to go through the past, present, and future of Mars exploration. And uh, at the top of the show, I'm going to talk quickly about uh, my citations. I want to cite because I used a lot of, uh, a couple of New Yorker articles Mm. and uh, Medium articles. So um, the first one is The Martian Chroniclers by Burgard Bilger from New York, from the New Yorker magazine. Mm. Uh, Also, All Dressed Up for Mars and Nowhere to Go by Elmo Keep. Aww. which is uh, from Matter, which is under the Medium mm-hmm. magazine. Um, I highly recommend this Elmo Keep article. Uh, she, Elmo, Elmo, is... Yes. A girl. She is Aww. a lady. And uh, All Dressed Up for Mars and Nowhere to Go is a fabulous article. It is so interesting. Um, I've read it at least three times. And <laughs> it's like you get more out of it every time. And then finally, Moving to Mars by Tom Kizia, uh, which is out of The New Yorker. And these uh, cool. are all kind of a couple of years old. Only because um, Mars One, if you remember, is mm. like the private company, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, was announcing that they were going to send people into Mars by 2025. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. yes. So, oh, which, I can't wait to hear more. Yeah, which ended up being kind of a scam, but whatever. <laughs> so here we go. The past of Mars exploration mm-hmm. is called the Martian Chronicles. Okay. Well, I named it the Martian Chronicles. <laughs> so I'm going to take I'm going to take you on a journey, Julia. Shoot. Here we go. I'm going to I'm going to paint you a picture with my words. In 1877, the Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli drew the first detailed map of Mars, labeling one region Eden, another Elysium, Arcadia, and Utopia. Through his telescope, he saw what looked like oceans, continents, and water channels. Those were actually an optical illusion. (laughs) He wrote, The planet is not a desert of arid rocks, he wrote. Eat the leaves. 
So he just had a telescope. He did. He just had a telescope. But Mars is actually close enough to us to see with a telescope. Oh. Um, and he had a very powerful telescope because he was an Italian astronomer. So he had access to that that good glass. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he was very excited about this. He wrote it all down. He made this beautiful map. Um, his astronomer successors often took him at his word. Mm-hmm. And they saw what they wanted to see for themselves uh, despite better telescope technology. And they saw mountains of ice and rivers, fertile oases, mm. and a green equator. They saw an irrigation system so linear and, quote, trigonometric, as a contemporary astronomer Percival Lowell put it, that it could only be the work of a highly intelligent race. Oh, my gosh. Some even saw the Hebrew word for almighty, which is Shaddai, spelled out on the planet's surface. Naturally. Lowell wrote several books on the subject of Mars and its possibility of life on it. Um, so this exploded due to this Mars fever exploded in the 19th mm-hmm. century. The idea that intelligent Martians were living on a planet that was uh, a drying, cooling, dying world with ancient civilizations constructing irrigation works to maintain life was a fashionable idea. And this was everywhere. So there were a lot of books written about, you know, like intelligent life, either mm-hmm. coming to earth or, or, you know, people from earth going to visit the Martians, that kind of thing. Um, it even like really kind of got into every nook and cranny of culture at the mm, time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually saw an 1893 ad called, uh, it said, Mars is peopled and they want Kirk's soap. So, <laughs> <laughs> and it was a picture. Of, yeah. And yeah. it was a picture of a guy looking at a telescope, you know, with a big long telescope mm-hmm. that's like looking at Mars. It was cute. Oh, wow. Even Nikola Tesla got mm-hmm. hooked on Mars fever. He started hearing atmospheric radio noise using his receivers in his Colorado Springs lab in 1899. Ooh. Uh, He concluded they may have been radio communications coming from another planet, possibly Mars. Mm. And in a New York Times article in 1901, Edward Charles Pickering, who was at the time the director of the Harvard College Observatory, said that they had received a telegram from Lowell Observatory in Arizona that seemed to confirm that Mars was trying to communicate with Earth. (sighs) Apparently, a shaft of light was seen to have been projected from Mars lasting 70 minutes. And apparently the story became world news, but nothing came of the claim. Wow. Because it was already hearsay by the time it was written in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. So Pickering later proposed creating a series of mirrors in Texas, because there's a lot of flat mm-hmm. land, mm-hmm. intending to signal Martians, like, you know, flash, flash. Oh. So books like the Martian Chronicles described a place, the Martian Chronicles by uh, Ray Bradbury, mm-hmm. described a place of eerie desert grandeur inhabited by slender, taunting beings given to strange hallucinations. And though infrared studies suggested that its surface had 70 times less water than the Earth's driest desert, biologists still hope for the best. So this, conti- this idea of Mars fever lasted well into the 20th century. Wow. And it's all because of that Italian all because Stop of that right. Italian. So he he was like, look at this incredible planet with all of these things. We could live there. There are probably things that live there. And That's people- really like a, a kind of a weird thing to think about in, in retrospect. Right? Like what did people think about the other planets yeah. and the other beings? And oh, yeah, we know that they're there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like they were pretty sure that there were, at, I mean, there had to be intelligent life there because it looked, according to him, so much like Earth. Mm. And that, okay, maybe it was, maybe in like better technology, okay, it's a little dry. Yeah. So maybe it's a dying planet and the, the people who are living there are like making irrigation. They're like highly intelligent, oh obviously, gosh. because yeah. they're trying to survive. So that's like, I can't imagine living in a world where people are like, everyone just it is just saying, yeah, there's probably Martians. <laughs> it's cool. Um, 
So a study by the National Academy of Sciences uh, in March 1965 concluded that, quote, given all the evidence presently available, we believe it is entirely reasonable that Mars is inhabited with living organisms and that life independently originated there. In 1965. Jeez. So four months later, four months, NASA's Mariner 4 spacecraft swung past the planet's northern hemisphere and sent back a series of images. They were grainy, black and white, 200 by 200 pixels, converted mm. from lines of numbers, but they left a clear impression. Where Arcadia and Elysium lay, there was a desolate waste pocked with craters. It didn't look like Earth. It looked like the moon. Oh, man. So that was disappointing. But because of advances in technology throughout the 20th century, the fantasy of Mars became less about Martians and more about the idea of just going there yeah. and seeing the unknown and perhaps populating Mars um, with colonies for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So um, science fiction actually um, shifted in that way. So it was prior to this um, technological advance where we could actually see the surface of Mars. People were like, there are Martians there. I wonder what they're like. Let's figure out, Mm -hmm. like, let's imagine what they're like and what their society is like. And then once it was definitively known that it was not peopled. Right. Then it shifted almost immediately to, well, then let's just go there. Yeah. So, um, so that continues to this day, this idea of going to Mars. And of course, we've mentioned this before, but The Martian by Andy Weir, which is a great book and a yeah. great movie. I highly recommend. Great book. And a great movie. And a Sorry, great movie. I wasn't. No, it's okay. They're <laughs> both equally good. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Carl Sagan wrote, Mars has become a kind of mythic arena onto which we have projected our earthly hopes and fears. Jeez. I know. Again, a soul of a poet, that Carl Sagan. In fact, um, I was at a wedding last month. Joel, shout out to Joel, and um, one of the guys actually read a poem, and they were like, "Kevin, come on up. He's going to read a poem." And he started reading it, and Steve and I like gripped each other because we thought that Kevin had written this poem because we didn't recognize that he wasn't like, "This is We Are Made of Star Stuff" by Carl Sagan. He was like a poem, and we were like, "Oh no, no!" It was like I was dying of vicarious embarrassment, but as it turned out, it was it was Carl Sagan. Oh, wow. So we were like, "Whoo." threat level midnight we're good it's okay everybody but anyway carl sagan is great um so the present Mm -hmm. of of space exploration of mars exploration i should say is the curiosity probe Hmm. so the mars science laboratory is the space probe mission to mars that was launched by nasa on november 26 2011 um, it successfully landed the Curiosity rover in Gale Crater on August 6th, 2012. And you may mm. have remembered mm-hmm. this because it was a big deal in the news. Right. The overall objective was to investigate Mars's habitability, study its climate and geology, and collect data for a future manned mission to Mars. Um, and the rover carries a variety of scientific instruments designed by an international team. So this international team is literally an international team. They, um, In the article that I uh, read, which was um, The Martian Chronicles mm-hmm. by Burkhard Bilger, he talks to a lot of the people who are on this oh, cool. team. Um, there's a guy from Venezuela, mm who's an engineer. There's a bunch of guys just from the U S there's people from India, people from China and Japan. It's really cool. Cool. Um, and they all worked really well together, which is why it was so successful. They were all like really close buddies. Um, and again, you should read that article to like really get a full sense of like a dadness of this team. (laughs) It's really cute. Um, so previous ro- there were previous rovers that were sent to Mars, including Sojourner, Spirit, and Opportunity. Um, and these rovers were managed and created by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. 
at um, California Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. And Jet Propulsion Laboratory will be henceforth known as JPL. Because mm-hmm. it's a lot of syllables. Because it's a lot of syllables. And the cost of this program was two point is $2.5 billion. Like, billion with a right. Like each year? Um, no, for the for the whole thing, <laughs> apparently. Well, what a bargain. Yeah. <laughs> so um, a little, little couple things about Curiosity, who will henceforth be known as him, um, is the most advanced of all the rovers by far. Uh, he has 10 times the amount of scientific instruments. Um, he takes selfies every so often to help with maintenance. <laughs> it's very cute. There's a bunch of pictures of him like, like camera, body, face. arm. Yeah. Which makes perfect sense because they want to like look at the machine and make sure that things yeah. are working. But it's kind of funny and cute. Um, transmission from Mars to uh, Earth takes 14 minutes across time and space. So a mm-hmm. lot of the uh, quote unquote driving of curiosity gets done while it is quote unquote asleep. Mm. So it, it like sleeps for a certain amount of time so that it can like reboot and like make sure everything is like, okay. And it just like wakes up in a new location. No. Uh, well it wakes up and then it's already programmed. So <laughs> okay. um, there's an engineer and a driver. Her name is Vandy Tompkins. Um, she's actually from a small town in India and has managed oh, wow. to become like one of the premier engineers on oh, J- awesome. at JPL, which is really cool. So while it's sleeping, she puts on these VR goggles and a keyboard and she programs the next day's routine. And then when Curiosity wakes up, he's like, boo 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 And then he just like drives around and does what she told him to do. It's really cute. Um, one engineer said, quote, my fiance says it looks like it was designed by a bunch of 13-year-old boys, which is kind of a funny thing. Um, the spacecraft has, okay, so they had a hard time figuring out how to get it to the surface of Mars. Okay. Um, because they actually have to like drop it off, but Mm -hmm. they don't want to drop it too far because it'll like smash to the ground. They don't want it to burn up in the atmosphere when it starts falling in because Mars has such a thin atmosphere. Mm -hmm. It's a thin, it's a thin enough atmosphere, but it's thick enough for it to like burn up in the atmosphere. So it's like a kind of, I don't want to say Goldilocks Mm -hmm. principle because that's a different thing, but, (laughs) um, so they had to figure out how to get it down there. And in previous probes, they had used what was essentially just airbag system mm. where they would just like, and then they would bounce. <laughs> bump, 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 and then they would hopefully write itself like these right. little rovers would write themselves and then go about. But because Curiosity was so big and so heavy and had so much technical equipment on it, they couldn't just use airbags mm. because again, if you like just physics and everything mass, if you make the airbags bigger, that's more weight, which right. weighs it down. So it's like counterintuitive. So what they decided was they were going to call it a sky crane. Ooh. And they thought it was, I mean, they were designing it and they're like, oh, this might work. This actually might work. Like that scene in, like those those scenes in The Martian yeah. where the JPL, they have like the big um, whiteboard and they're like, everybody's <laughs> shouting out ideas and they're like writing it down and there's math and stuff. I love it. I just love it. It's such a <laughs> cool thing. Um, so they decided what they were going to do was they were going to take a little spacecraft. It was going to fly down. Then just before it hits the surface, it would drop Curiosity down on these cables. Okay. So it like, bloop, like, like, um, what's I'm looking for? Uh, Mission Impossible. Okay. He would yes. like Mission Impossible down and then they would fly him down. I have my arms out. <laughs> <laughs> they would fly him down and then they would land him as gently as possible. And then the spacecraft would immediately break it off and take off in the opposite direction wow. because of gravity and because of right. like just everything. There was a very high probability that the spacecraft would just crash into curiosity once it hit the ground. Okay. 
So they had to disconnect immediately and then like shoot off. So this all had to happen like so precisely. So it had, okay, so it had a rocket to lift it off into space. There was a cruise stage to carry it to Mars. And then the landing shell to glide through the upper atmosphere. And then the sky crane would hover above the surface and launch the rover to the ground. So it's crazy. And it happened perfectly. And that's why you see the video of them on August 6th. Everybody in the, in the team was like, <laughs> losing their minds. Like, yeah. Losing their minds. So um, again, what's on Curiosity? There's a bunch of cameras and a full lab. There's actually a full lab on board to help determine the chemical makeup of samples. Oh, wow. Which is really cool. Um, uh, due to the fact that there isn't a return to earth planned. And I put a sad face next to it. I know it's very sad. Uh, NASA dubbed its landing the seven minutes of terror due to the 14 minute (laughs) delay on the transmission. So they were watching it later. Mm -hmm. So by the time they started watching it descend, it had already happened. So it's like if you um, tape a, a live sporting event and then you don't watch it for, yes, you know, you watch it an hour after it happened. Yeah. Like, this there thing a, already happened. It doesn't matter what you what you're thinking exactly. while you're watching it because it already happened. It's but Schrodinger's it's football. Thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so there is a video that NASA put out before they did it. It's called Seven Minutes of Terror. <laughs> um, it's on the NASA website. Oh, cool. I highly recommend watching it. It's only like four minutes. There's like a Wagnerian soundtrack. There's like close-ups, <laughs> math, math. There's a simulation of the thing. There's uh, talking head interviews where they're like, it's intense. I can't believe we did this. Boom, 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 boom. Music, music. And then at the end, there's three words that just come up on screen in all caps. <laughs> Dare mighty things. Oh, and I, I know. Gosh. And I got, I actually got a little teary. I was like, yes, we dare mighty things. <laughs> Get that on a t-shirt. Yeah. I know, right? We you should do some embroidery with I it. Should. Oh my God. That's such a good idea. I'll make it embroidery. Um, yeah. I highly recommend watching the video. Again, it's called Seven Minutes of Terror. It's on the NASA website. But it's not seven minutes long. No, it is not seven minutes long, ironically enough. So um, here's another interesting thing about Curiosity. On August 6th, 2013... Curiosity audibly played happy birthday to you in honor of the one Earth year mark of its Martian landing. <laughs> the first time for a song to be played on another planet, and it was also the first time music was transmitted between two planets. Oh my gosh. So wow. can you imagine just like a vast barren wasteland? And he's just like, <laughs> sad. Um, so here's a little cool bit of trivia. Curiosity was named by sixth grader Claire Ma in an essay contest. Aww. She's from Nebraska. She got to go to JPL Calif- in California and sign her name on Curiosity. <gasps> and I am supremely jealous. Oh, wow. In her essay, she wrote, here's a little excerpt from it, which is great. It's amazing. It's clearly she deserved to win. <laughs> she wrote, Curiosity is an everlasting flame that burns in everyone's mind. It makes me get out of bed in the morning and wonder what surprises life will throw me that day. Curiosity is such a powerful force. Without it, we wouldn't be who we are today. Curiosity is the passion that drives us through our everyday lives. We have become explorers and scientists with our need to ask questions and to wander. Oh, I know, that's so great? sweet. Um, so the landing site was renamed the Bradbury Landing in honor, Ray Brad- in honor of Bray Bradbury, author of Good Sci-Fi and the Martian Chronicles. Um, another cool thing, um, first I'm going to mention this. Curiosity will be the basis for the Mars 2020 planned rover mission. Mm. And um, so he's, his 
all of his components and mistakes and successes are all going to be ba- the base for the next rover. Wow. And the NASA JPL Mars Science Laboratory slash Curiosity Project team was awarded the 2012 Robert J. Collier Trophy by the National Aeronautics Association in recognition of the extraordinary achievements of successfully landing Curiosity on Mars, advancing the nation's technological and engineering capabilities, and significantly approving humanity's understanding of ancient Martian habitable environments. Did that all fit on the trophy inscription? I think so. It's very, very tiny. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to read it with a microscope, but that's okay because they have a lot of those at JPL. Um, So uh, local connection, uh, Rochester Mini Maker Fair. Uh, There's a rep. Her name is Pat Rapp. I met her. She's a bundle of energy. Mm. She's wonderful. She has a team for, uh, okay, so a maker fair is like when engineers and people who are just interested in building and making Mm -hmm. come together and they learn about new technologies and they build and they make and it's kind of like a cool outreach thing. Cool. Um, She has a team. It's a nationwide team. They are out of Las Vegas and they make rover replicas for Burning Man. So they, they did a, a Curiosity rover replica um, that they built themselves. Actually, they have the team is just a vast, like wide ranging team of like wackadoodles. Mm-hmm. One guy is a clown, <laughs> um, and actually one of them is a guy like a retired guy from JPL. So he was very you know he was helpful when it wow. came to like building the stuff. But what was cool was they went to Burning Man. They dressed like like. Um, <laughs> they dress like astronauts and they had the rover and people could go on it and like take pictures with oh it and gosh. stuff. And they actually got to talk a little bit about like what curiosity is, even though they're not associated at all with NASA. So like so, how big is curiosity? Cu- curiosity is pretty big. It's like a car. It's like a car. It's like a big, it's, I would say like a big SUV. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's pictures on there. Um, Rochester mini maker fair. I think she still has photos up of cool. them at burning man. It's really cool. So, the future of Mars okay. exploration. And I wrote future Mars one, but Mars one is probably not going to happen. Mm. But we're going to talk quickly about Mars one. Mars one is a private not-for-profit company that is claiming that by 2025, they will send four colonists to Mars Four, four colonists. Okay. So ultimately there will be six groups of four men and women who will train on earth for 10 years and then go to Mars never to return. Mm-hmm. Um, they said it's going to cost them 6 billion, which is way cheaper than any other program proposed by NASA mm. or any other Institution. So like getting there and establishing your home colony. Yep. And At the deep discount price of $6 million. Wow. $6 billion, excuse me. Um, the reason why it's so cheap is because Mars One claims to plan to outsource their mission hardware and material to private companies. Mm. And they're going to raise a good mon- bit of the money by creating a reality TV series <laughs> documenting the pr- training process. And they claim that they had over 200,000 applicants, but that is that probably a scam, yeah. So, but the Mars One thing kind of, I guess, brought Mars back into like the national consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, we should go to Mars. <laughs> However, according to um, All Dressed Up for Mars and Nowhere to Go and Moving to Mars by Tom Kizia, this is the problems with Mars. Why we haven't colonized okay. there yet and why right now our technology is probably not good enough for us to do it. Um, there have been 43 unmanned missions to Mars. Wow. 21 of them have failed. Yeah, I was going to say, geez. Mars is negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 62 degrees Celsius on average. And at the equator in the summer, it can get up to 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So it never gets, mm-hmm. 
warm. Mm -hmm. It is barren. There are no geological features other than frozen ice caps, vast deserts, and huge mountain peaks. And one of them is known as Mons Olympia, which is the tallest mountain in the solar system. Mm -hmm. It is as big as uh, France. Just <laughs> it's just as big as France in terms of like like size, mm -hmm. and it is like incredibly times taller than any other than right. any Earth mountain. Um, Mars is not close. It is 140 million miles away. It wow, has almost no atmosphere. The surface is exposed to deadly amounts of radiation. And roughly every five years, the planet is blanketed in a violent dust storm that blocks the sun for months. Hmm. Um, exposure to galactic com cosmic rays increase the li likelihood of cancer and Alzheimer's, as well as suppressing human immune systems. So building a craft capable of insulating astronauts from such deep space radiation, including lethal amounts from solar flares that can erupt without warning, while finding a way to keep the craft light enough to be able to carry sufficient fuel, remains a work in progress. Mm, the flight to Mars would take between seven and nine months. Um, also, zero gravity has a deleterious effect on the human body. Um, over the course of a trip to Mars, it could result in a loss of 20% of muscle mass total and the loss of 1.5% bone density per month. And a lack of vitamin D also causes loss of muscle and bone density. It, supp it suppresses immune strength and even causes blindness in some extreme oh cases. There was a Russian cosmonaut who actually went temporarily blind from cataracts because he had been um, on the Mir sta space oh, station man. for a year. Um, so there's that. So with like astronaut Scott Kelly and his brother, mm -hmm. Mark. So they're the twin brother astronauts. Yes. And so one of them stayed in space like for a significant period of time. So yes. that then the scientists could like study the effects of that on the body. Yes. And so that's to help inform mm -hmm. missions like this. Yes, absolutely. And also not only um, the effects on the body, but also the effects on the mind, Ooh. like the psychological effects of space madness, which is a real thing. Um, and we'll talk about this. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, the same, <laughs> the same goes for intracranial pressure. Zero gravity has on the human eyeball. Ooh. Yeah, you need that gravity to keep your your old balls in your brain, you know. So that's that can and also can cause blindness that way because you have a very delicate pressure system in your eyeball that keeps you seeing and also comfortable. You're not always feeling your eyeballs rattling around in your head. Now I'm very but conscious of my eyeballs. <laughs> now you can feel them. But uh, intracranial pressure, when there's zero gravity, you don't you can't regulate that. <laughs> Um, also, sleep patterns are badly disturbed by space travel. You don't have well, um, a diurnal pattern. <laughs> uh, more than half of astronauts on long-haul missions take sedatives to help them sleep. Mm -hmm. Fatigue and lethargy result in impaired cognitive function and an increase in critical errors, which is why astronauts only have a six-and-a-half-hour fit work mm -hmm. hours per day. Um, a lack of energy can be exacerbated by the limited diet astronauts must subsist on once their initial supplies run out. Mars colonists would eat only food that could grow themselves. A plant-based like diet. Yeah, like potatoes. <laughs> a plant-based diet augmented by legumes and maybe insects that they would have to bring with them and raise like a farm, like a tiny insect farm. Um, also, depression, anxiety, listlessness, hallucinations, space madness, and chronic stress have all been reported in live missions and in training simulations. Even training simulations oh. have these. 
uh, as have communication breakdowns and conflict among crews and between mission command. I mean, if you are alone in a tin can, I mean, you know how stressful it is to be like in a plane. In an airplane? Yeah. And you have that. I have this pretty frequently, which is why I hate to fly. But that sudden realization where it's like, oh, I can't get out of here. I am in a, I am in a can, tin can like hundreds of miles above the Earth's surface. I can't get out of here anytime soon. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I hope you're not on a plane listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This is a bad one for you guys to listen to. Anyway. Um, also, the, and this is interesting, a well-known effect on astronauts out on long missions is the dip at the halfway point when the excitement has worn off oh. and the return home seems unbearably distant. And there's no way to know how a human mind will encounter passing the threshold of no return. When the Earth recedes from sight and the pitch black enormity of deep space and the impossibility of ever turning back sinks in. Oh my God, I gotta breathe. That's, that's so yeah, tough. if you volunteered to just be one of the first Mars colonists, Please knowing think that about you that. would never come back to Earth, you would basically be somebody that has a, uh, you would have to be mentally healthy, but also have no like like living mission. relatives that you would miss. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like it's no crazy. attachments, no. It's crazy. Ugh. So eventually, the four colonists, or anyone really, will arrive on an inhospitable alien world with only themselves for company for two years until another flight with four colonists is hoped to arrive if they too survive the perilous trip through the vacuum of space. They will never speak to anyone but one another in real time ever again. The delay in relaying communications between Mars and the Earth is 20 minutes minimum. Colonists would most likely live like moles in an underground facility that they would have to dig and completely construct themselves. Yeah, think oh, about I that. wasn't thinking about that. They would need to be able to make tools, do repairs on everything you could possibly imagine from refrigerators to teeth, because if not, you'll die. So they all have to get trained in like basic surgery, right. dental, all that stuff. Um, the dust on Mars is also very fine and can get in your lungs if you're not mm -hmm. careful. And there are chlorates, which can shut down your thyroid gland. Oh. So at the um, 65th International Astronautical Congress in Toronto, four MIT strategic engineering grad students presented a 35-page paper to independently assess the technical feasibility of Mars One's current plan. The students concluded that among many, many other concerns, the oxygen required to grow crops, crops would quickly rise to deadly levels, producing almost 100% humidity, requiring venting via as yet non-existent technology that would separate mm. nitrogen and oxygen, and the habitat would soon become a serious fire hazard and the colonists would likely asphyxiate as a result the first fatality would occur 68 days after landing i know it's like it chills so and i i this is what i wrote imagine it okay the first colonists will be completely cut off from everything they've ever known for the rest of their lives they will do everything from scratch have their own society their own constitution laws even their own holidays even different hours of the day and how their day is broken up because the Mars day is completely different. Um, so remember when I talked about Chris Hadfield, the guy who sang um, uh, Space Oddity in Space, okay, who's yeah. the Canadian astronaut? He's a badass. Um, he went temporarily, go. he survived temporarily going blind after a spacewalk when tiny drops of chemicals made their way into both his eyes from a puncture in his spacesuit. Oh. And then he kept his cool and he was like, guys, I got to get back inside because um, I'm space blind. <gasps> yeah, it's crazy. And he survived. Like, 
you have to have an iron will Mm -hmm. to do this kind of thing. So NASA's doing some stuff to like try and prevent this craziness, at least psychologically. And here's why. They call it Project High Seas, which stands for the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation. Um, it is a space exploration and uh, uh, space exploration and isolation is akin to historic seafaring or Antarctic explorations, which is why they kind of came up with the acronym of High Seas. Um, and they were in there from October 2014 to June 2016, and I think they've done it a couple more times. It's an experiment on teamwork and isolation in a simulated Mars dome. Uh, on Mauna Loa and they are known as team cohesion studies. So it's in partnership with NASA. It's a test of group dynamics and morale to help design systems that will send a team into deep space. And this uh, I got mostly from moving to Mars by Tom Kizia. And that is also just a great article. It's so funny. It's so good. The people that he talks to who work for NASA and this high seas project are just like fun, cool people who are really excited about Mars. And that's just really awesome. So um, they're in this dome. And uh, what's cool is that they have to, they have to put on like a spacesuit when they go mm-hmm. out, you know, they got to do like their EVAs, even though they're on like, a, uh, they're in, in Hawaii. America. <laughs> There's a 20 minute delay when they talk to ground oh, control. Yeah. Um, they, they can send out emails, but they give it a, you know, like a delay on that too. Um, they have to journal, they have to answer like, 40 surveys per day about like how they're feeling. Mm. What's their, what are they doing? How are their, do they feel successful? Like all that stuff. Um, but, and they, they get along very, very well uh, because they have to, but yeah. also because they picked people who had um, what is considered like the best personality mm. traits for an astronaut. That makes sense. Which is someone who is flexible, um, kind of a low-key personality and has a long fuse, which is definitely not me. So not, not, me. not an ESTJ. <laughs> <laughs> not an ESTJ. Not an ESTJ. Um, so, but there's still conflicts that arise and they even, they have like, um, like interviews post the project mm-hmm. to kind of talk about like, well, yeah. how did you feel about this person? How did it get, how did everybody get along? And there was something called the Nutella incident with this, <laughs> with this particular project with these people. <laughs> And apparently someone on the team ate the last of the Nutella without <gasps> any consideration for anybody oh else. Oh my gosh. Uh, under the idea that, oh, well, we're going to just open up another can tomorrow. Like we're, we're scheduled to open up another can yeah. tomorrow. I don't understand why this is such a big deal. But because they're all isolated under this mm. dome and technically on Mars, like it just... It was extremely tense. The, the, and everyone referred to it as the Nutella incident later. They were like, oh, yeah, the Nutella incident is real bad. So, um, in, How big is the dome? Um, I, what do you imagine? I'm it's ima- not like a tent that you pitch. No, it's not, it's not like a tent. I imagine there's, they try and make it as much like a space station as possible. Okay. So they probably give them th- those like coordinates okay. and all of like the technological material that they'll need to like, do studies and like everything that they would do. Do they all kind of have their own, their own area? Like that you would have your own like sleeping space and I don't think so. I think they all have to like, they're, they're cohabitating all together to like also to save energy. too, Right. So like they need to heat or cool the space. They want it to be as small as humanly possible so that they can save energy. Wow. I know it's like, I, again, I, I don't know how many times I have to say this, but I would never in a million billion years, I will die first before I go to Mars or space. 
So um, I'm going to, in closing for this, I'm going to recount this great story that's mm. in the Tom Kizia piece. Um, <clears throat> one evening in March, not long after the crew passed the four month mark, um, one of the, the ground control, oh, one of the girls in the, the dome checked a wall mounted iPad in the dome and saw an ominous descending line. <clears throat> the batteries were draining power instead of charging. Solar power is always scarce in the dome. To retain enough battery life for a normal night, the crew members cook dinner while the sun is up. That week, through several days of raining clouds, they'd been bundling up for warmth, boiling quick freeze-dried meals and skipping movies at night. Even so, they'd run through their backup hydrogen cells, and they couldn't get more gasoline for their generator. So one of the ground control people, their truck had broken down on her way back from a David Sedaris talk in Hilo. (laughs) Um, So they were running on uh, their last Jerrican, and the triple redundant system was failing. On Mars, such a scenario would put their life support at risk. So the team made some emergency calculations, and in a matter of hours, they would lose the fan on their composting toilet, which is very dangerous. Two crew members put on hazmat suits and went out with flashlights, waiting... (laughs) This is so funny. It's cute. They they waited three minutes in the entry to symbolize pressurization. So they they get on there. They do everything by Mm -hmm. the book. They go out, they put their hazmat suits on, and they stand in the hallway for three minutes... (laughs) which is so cute to think of but no they did it right um they could find no problem when they went out there um they went out of simulation briefly texting a mission support technician for help troubleshooting but there was no luck okay so the crew came up with a plan they shut off the lights in the dome and turned off the heat they ran basic telemetry off the batteries and plugged an extension cord from the generator into their three highest priorities yeah the toilet fan (laughs) The refrigerator holding four months' work of frozen urine and saliva samples for NASA. Oh, man. And the tank heater for their pet betta fish. Blast off (laughs) McRocket Boots. (laughs) (laughs) They had a pet betta fish that they named Blast Off McRocket Boots. That's really good. It's my favorite thing. So in the morning, a technician drove up the mountain and fixed the generator. But that was... A good example of teamwork when mm-hmm. a problem comes up, and they did it all within the simulation, which was um, that NASA was like really excited about that Aww. they had the wherewithal to do that. That's great. So we have not been to Mars yet. No, but we will be in Mars. Matt Damon's been to Mars. I think, Mar- so. Matt Damon is the only person on Earth who's been to Mars. That's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's also a good example of like what it would be like to be on Mars, and like what uh, apparent. And I had mentioned this before in a previous episode, but. Andy Weir did a lot of research with actual NASA scientists Mm -hmm. and JPL scientists to find out what it would actually be like, what technology would be needed and how you would have to do that to get to Mars and actually survive on Mars. So, um, yeah, that's pretty cool. Wow. So we're going to Mars. Dads are going to Mars. (laughs) And maybe moms too. Maybe moms too. You know what? Mars needs moms. (laughs) (laughs) Mars needs moms. Oh, I should say, you know what? I should rename this moms in space. Mission to Mars. Oh, you've right, we're going to edit it. Yeah, we'll edit it. No, we won't. Don't edit it. Okay, so now my quiz is going to be on science fiction. Great. Okay. Question number one. Ray Bradbury is the author of many great and influential science fiction novels, with Fahrenheit 451 being arguably the most famous. What does the 451 in the title indicate? Question number two. What is the name of the Margaret Atwood book series that begins with Oryx and Crake? Question number three. Which Philip K. Dick novel gave the basis for Blade Runner? Question number four. 
What planet was the ship headed to in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey? Question number five. Who played the owner of Jurassic Park in Jurassic Park? Question number six. In the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation, one of the most feared enemies of the Federation are known as the Borg. What is their motto? Question number seven. What was the Highlander's name in the movie The Highlander? Question number eight. This American science fiction author and recipient of the Hugo and Nebula Awards was the first sci-fi writer to receive the MacArthur Fellowship in 1995. Name her. Question number nine. What was mined on the planet Arrakis in Dune? And finally, question number 10. What was Soylent Green? I'll give you a minute to think about it, and then we'll be back with answers. Question number one, Ray Bradbury is the author of many great and influential science fiction novels. Fahrenheit 451, what does the 451 mean? The temperature at which paper burns. Perfect. The temperature at which paper bursts into flame. I really loved that book. I still love that book. It's a great, I, I have a soft spot for dystopian novels and mm. movies, Ooh, which is weird. Whereas I hate them. Yes, you do hate them. <laughs> That's absolutely, absolutely true. I almost has a question about Mad Max in here because Mad Max is one of my favorite mm. movie series as well. But I, I didn't want to make it too hard for you. I didn't mm. want to have I didn't want to have a remix of like the religious. Oh my god, quiz. that was the worst. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I made that way too hard. Okay, what is the name of the Margaret Atwood book series that begins with Oryx and Craig? I do not know. Okay, it's known as the Mad Adam trilogy. Oh, okay. Are they doing the movie thing with that? Um, I think they. I I heard something about that. Mm. Oryx and Craig. Um, she, the Mad Adam trilogy is not my favorite. Okay. I like her sci-fi. That's a little bit more like historic feminist mm. with a little bit of like weirdness okay. to it. Like the perfect example of that is the blind assassin, which mm-hmm. is my favorite Margaret Atwood book, um, which has a little bit of sci-fi in it, but it's within the context of a story within a story. And the person telling it is the author of this sci-fi mm-hmm. novel. So it's, it's really good. I highly recommend it. I think you would like it. Okay. Um, okay, question number three. Which Kil- Philip K. Dick novel gave the basis for Blade Runner? Is that the moment that do androids dream of electric sheep? Yes, it's do yeah. androids dream of electric sheep. That is exactly it. Uh, apparently, Philip K. Dick wrote it while he was on um, hallucinogens. <laughs> <laughs> question number four. What planet was the ship headed to in 2001 A Space Odyssey? Hmm. I didn't know How this. How about... Neptune. Ooh, close. Jupiter. 
Is that the next one? It's no, 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 it's not. You're right. <laughs> Sorry. <Whoops>. Um, <laughs> I didn't know this. Okay. Uh, who played the owner in Jurassic Park? Is that Richard Attenborough? It is Richard Attenborough, who is the brother of Sir David Attenborough. Of the of, uh, nature-y yes, things. Of all that, who is the, the beautiful, rich um, British voice. Hmm. And Richard Attenborough, sadly, has passed. Right. Um, I think he died in the early 2000s, but... Or did he die in 2016 when everyone else died? It's very possible that he died in 2016 <laughs> when everybody else died. May he rest. Okay. In the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation, one of the most feared enemies of the Federation are known as the Borg. What is their motto? Uh, four for the fingers and one for the thumb. <laughs> what is no. that from? <laughs> That's not it. It's the Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. What does that even mean? For the Super Bowl rings. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Okay. We got... The Steelers have won six Super Bowls. So we have rings yeah, for uh, all these fingers. We got rings oh, for, four, for, four for, the fingers. for the fingers, one for the thumb. And now we got one for the other thumb. And so now too. you got to come up with a new rhyme. How do yep. we get on football? We're talking about Star Trek. <laughs> ah, it's football yeah, again. Yeah. Football season. Suddenly everything's about the Steelers. <laughs> the Borgs. I don't know. <laughs> the, it's the, the Borg. Oh. Because they're a hive mind. So there's no plural of the Borg. Okay. It's just the Borg. Um, their motto is resistance is futile. Okay. So, I can see that. Yeah. And they assimilate. They're like the bat. Yeah. Yeah. They don't destroy. They just assimilate. They just want, they just like make you a Borg and make you a Borg, oh. which is why they're the most feared because they don't destroy. They just assimilate. Hmm. So it's good. I mean, it's a nice, not a nice, it's not nice <laughs> at all, but it's a good plot point in the series. Okay. Number seven. What was the Highlander's name in the movie? The Highlander. I don't know. It's okay. It was Connor McLeod. Um, I hated that movie. Mm. I hated it more than anything. Go ahead. Tweet at me. I don't even care. I The the accent that the main character has was like a mishmash of things on purpose to make him seem like international and eternal. So there can be only one. Yes. I don't know what he does. I don't know who he is. He's got a sword. time traveler? Yeah, he, he travels through time, sort of. It's very weird. Does it's a, a bad kill? movie. Uh, at one point he does when he's back in time. And then um, Sean Connery's in it for some reason. Oh. He plays a Spaniard, but he keeps the Scottish accent. Oh, that seems It's silly. super dumb. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> Number eight, this American science fiction author and recipient of the Hugo and Nebula Awards was the first sci-fi writer to receive the MacArthur Fellowship in 1995. What was her name? I don't know. Her name is Octavia E. Butler. Oh, crap. Yep. Her stuff is at the Huntington Library, which I just read a whole bunch oh, of man. stuff about this week, too. Well, she was, ex- she, sadly, she died in, um, uh, I think, 2006 at 58. Uh, but she wrote an incredible fiction. She was a very influential writer and woman of color. Um, she wrote Kindred. She wrote the Parable series, which she actually didn't end up finishing. Um, it was supposed to be a trilogy with the first being Parable of the Sower, second one, Parable of the Talents, and she did not, in fact, finish the third one. She suffered from writer's block at mm. the end of her life. And her novel Dawn is being adapted uh, for a TV series by Ava DuVernay. Oh, cool. So that's something cool. Yeah, the Huntington has done a couple of different exhibits with some of the materials of literary papers that they have there, and hers is one of the more recent ones. We should tweet out a link about Yeah, her, absolutely. About her Thank there. you. We will do that um, when this episode airs. Uh, question number nine: What was the what was mined on the planet Arrakis in Dune? <laughs> uh, lead. Uh, no, it's known as the spice melange. The spice must flow. I think they huff it 
I think they huff it or they eat it. It's spice. And what they do, they can travel through time. Are they time. animals? Are they people? No, they're people. They're people. And the spice is made by the giant sandworms. Oh. Of course. Naturally. Yes. So they <laughs> they mine it, but the sandworms want to keep it, so they have to fight off mm. the sandworms. It's been a while since I've seen the movie, and I've never read That's the book. That's way more information than I had. That's why Steve is uh, trivia with us. Yes. So, that so he, he can, can answer, answer questions, questions about, about Dune. Dune. Mm-hmm. So that we don't have to. <laughs> um, not to throw shade at Dune. It's an no, influential I'm, series. I'm not... It's, but it's just not something I've read yet. So there you go. Um, finally, question number 10. What was Soylent Green? People. Soylent Green is people. Now that's a good movie. <laughs> if only to watch Charlton Heston just chew the mind. scenery yeah. like a crazy person. Also, <laughs> the first time I watched it, I was like, this is very 60s. Like yeah. it was just like. At one point, I think there's like a dance break where they're like, banana, banana. It's a very, I'm like, wait a second. I thought this was a dystopian landscape. You're all having a swinging good time yeah. and taking LSD, but whatever. Oh my gosh. So that was my quiz on sci fi. Oh, so wonderful. <laughs> I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I know it's not your bag. So, no, oh, there's some good stuff in there and yeah. stuff like that shows up at trivia. Yeah, it shows Dune up all especially. The time. Oh my gosh, so up. much Dune. Yeah. So yeah, everybody study your Dune, <laughs> or find someone that yes, or it. or know somebody who really likes Dune. So there's that. Anyway, well, awesome. I learned a lot today. Good. I'm so glad. Well, thank you everyone for listening and listening to me uh, do Dads in Space again. I'll probably Ooh. do another one because I just love Dads in Space. <laughs> um, you can find us on Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes. Um, you can please well you can and but we would ask you to uh rate review and subscribe and uh, thank you to everybody that has done that so yes, far it really means so a lot much. to us yeah we really appreciate and we it are taking your feedback into consideration yes absolutely um because uh, neither one of us are perfect right and constructive criticism is uh welcomed and yes. embraced yep so there's that Awesome. Um, You can reach us on Twitter at MissInfoPod. You can email us at MissInfoPod at gmail.com or you can find us on our website at triple dub dot. What do they say? What the Canadians say? Triple W. Triple W dot MissInfoPod.com. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening, guys. (laughs) And uh, we will see you next time. See you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.